0: Welcome to MedTech Connect, a new digital health regulations podcast from Sightline. I'm your host, Hannah Daniel, and I'm a U.S. regulatory reporter for MedTech Insight. Since this is the first episode of this new series, I wanted to give a quick overview of what we'll cover. Every month, we'll interview a regulatory expert in the digital health industry who will help us break down policies and guidances coming out of the FDA, as well as other hot button issues such as cybersecurity concerns, the rise of AI and ML, or the fight to protect medical data. New episodes publish monthly, so be sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and tune in to get notified when new MedTech Connect episodes come out. In this episode, I speak to Aris Kaminsky. CEO and founder of Ketrix, which assists clients in creating FDA-regulated software. He updates us on the latest and greatest in digital health regulation, including PCCPs, decentralized clinical trials, and AI and ML software. We talk about some of the challenges and opportunities that often arise from these regulations, and also Erez shares a personal story about why the safety of medical devices matters so much to him. Erez, welcome to the show. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into your current role?
1: Yeah, so I am the founder and CEO of a company called Ketrix that makes uh, product and software development tooling for people developing highly regulated products like medical devices or clinical trial management software or other different things that human life depends on uh, to avoid harm. I came into this because I spent a a while being a a developer uh, or a physicist, actually, I, I used to develop numerical simulations. I think my partner in uh, in the company wouldn't say I was a developer per se. And uh, then I went to work for a company called Wolfram Research that develops software tooling for mathematicians and physicists to help with numerical simulations and computer algebra. And there I kind of really learned the ropes of building large scale web applications, machine learning applications, uh, and deploying them within a qu- high quality environment, not like a medical device environment, but a high quality environment nonetheless. And my first real intro into medical devices was, uh, professionally at least, I was asked to join a company called Amgen, which is the world's largest biopharmaceutical company, is uh, the head of AI and machine learning for their combination product group, which means they develop medical devices that have both uh, mechanical or electrical or software components, but also a biologic component or a chemical component which makes them uh, of much greater risk and felt like the work uh, I was seeing all across the industry being done in that space was moving slower than I would like it to move and was very frustrating to engineers. And so uh, at some point I decided to, to go on and uh, go back to school, actually, went back to school at MIT. And then uh, after MIT, I started this company to help combine those two passions, building tools and helping people build a way to create uh, better healthcare outcomes for patients and their families. My mother is both a patient and a physician. She actually treats the same disease that she has. My mother is profoundly deaf. She has cochlear implants. She's a bilateral cochlear implantee, which means she has a device that is a connector that goes into the hearing nerve, which is kind of outside the brain, and allows a person who can't hear to hear in certain scenarios. Uh, She happens to be also a doctor that implants the same implant in people. And I think she was the first person in the world to perform the surgery while having an implant on. And so through her patients and through living with her, I I saw for myself the changes that biomedical innovation can cause in families and in people's lives. And, you know, I grew up in hospitals going with my mom to the ward and having patients and other doctors and, and the family dinners and grew up around my mom having surgeries and just seeing the impact that this can have and also negative impact if it doesn't work well. When you install an implant into someone's body, it's not okay if it should work sometimes. It should work 100% of the time. They're going under full anesthesia. And so uh, a lot of my, I'd say, deep interest comes from this very personal view of how biomedical innovation can positively impact people's lives. So it's not something that I talk about kind of in the third person. You know, I think about it every day.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that personal story. And was your regulatory expertise something you you know studied or it just happened because you were now leading this company?
1: So it's funny enough, my regulatory expertise probably started when I was in the military before all, everything I just said. And I was in charge of battalion safety. So I read a little bit about safety even then. But I'd say working in a pharmaceutical or a biopharmaceutical company uh, is a way, place that just makes you learn a lot about regulation and compliance and validation and how to build products in an environment like that. But then later on, as I, I got into this problem of why is it so hard to build software that meets high quality regulation, FDA regulations, I really got into the regulations themselves. I, I wanted to start not just procedures that people have built on top of the regulations to execute them, but to really read what they're asking for. And to think, does this make sense to me? A lot of people tend to think that The FDA, for example, is asking for things that don't make sense or very uh, burdensome. I wanted to know for myself. And so I read them, you know, obviously, the more you know about this, the more you realize that they're kind of asking for the minimal things you would want to get if uh, your mother was receiving a pacemaker or some implant based on uh, these methodologies. And so I kind of self-educated myself, started working with consultants and companies uh, I was lucky enough to hire a person at FDA that wrote a lot of the American regulation. He was the reviewer of a kind of seminal guidances like general principles of software validation. And through our conversations, I also learned not just what the regulation says, but how is it was thought about and why it was created and why, for example, change is such a big aspect of it. And at this point, I help also write standards uh, for the medical device cloud and participate a lot in committees and just general work around How can we help people organize and create medical innovation that's going to impact people's lives at scale?
0: Mm -hmm. So there has been a lot of new digital health regulations out of Congress recently, thanks to timelines laid out in the Food and Drug Omnibus Reform Act of 2022, also known as Fedora, which was a part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which we talked a lot about on a previous podcast episode. Notably, there was actually a recent draft guidance on predetermined change control plans that was released at the end of March. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about it and, you know, how it was maybe different than what was expected or, you know, if it was different at all. And then kind of ask you if you have any advice for companies who need to have the specific plan in place. As you kind of communicated, these plans are very specific documents that show a deep understanding of product architecture and configuration of software and AI and ML models. So, you know, requires a lot of expertise.
1: Yeah. Well, Hannah, that's a very loaded, complicated question that I think we can we could spend a few hours, if not days, talking about. And I know that me and our VP of regulatory, Paul, and uh, other folks across the kind of standard world and uh, FDA regulatory world, uh, I've spent many hours and days talking about even. But I think it's Omnibus, uh, Fedora, however you want to call it, is a a critical reform that had to happen and couldn't happen fast enough. Uh, I think this new AIML, PCCP, Predetermined Change Control Plan guidance is one step as part of this uh, new law. Uh, I think the most immediate impact would be the need of all manufacturers to generate an FDA-compliant software bill of material uh, as part of their submission. Uh, That was a very fast guidance that came into effect just a few weeks ago. And until October 1st, 2023, there is a grace period in which the FDA will work with you to help understand the the requirements. But after that, they can refuse to accept any submission that has a quote unquote cyber device component or subsystem that does not meet what they consider a reasonable software bill of material configuration and software bill of material configuration management plan. I think one of the challenges is that the tools people use to produce S-bombs in other industries are not appropriate to the type of uh, reliability and risk management requirements and information requirements that medical device manufacturers need to meet and other people serving the FDA under numerous guidance from off-the-shelf software guidance and uh, GPSV, good principles of software validation guidance. So I think there's going to be a challenge with that, especially because it's happening so soon. Although many companies have been preparing for this for a while and have programs in place and tools in place. Uh, so one way to, to to do that is to find kind of a vendor who understands what the FDA is trying to do and trying to regulate you for and trying to look at and how you can create lifecycle management systems that ensure that you make safe and reliable products uh, that are consistently high quality uh, within FDA compliance regulations. So one is to, to find a way to do that, right, with automation, because it's going to be something you're going to do all the time. And I think, like you said, along with the cyber component of fedora there is this idea of software needs to be changed so one part of that is the requirement now to have a hotfix process or a patch they sometimes call it the patch act that requires you to have the ability to fix your system fast enough which is commonly done in tech harder to do in medical devices because medtech is just very very hard and challenging and it's hard to bring systems that are highly reliable and human life can depend on to market consistently and that's why manufacturers you know find it challenging the third part of that is is the need to change continuously, not just as a result of, of a fix or a patch, but also as a result of routine work on improving your systems. And I think this AIML PCCP guidance hits that exact issue, which commonly in machine learning practices, the more the model knows about the world or learns from data, the better it gets. And so it's very common practice to retrain your models all the time, maybe weekly, maybe even daily or hourly, to constantly learn and improve its performance. A big challenge with that is sometimes these models are, uh, because they're statistical, they're flaky, and maybe you think you, you taught it one thing, but it actually learned another thing, and that causes some errors in the model later on, which the FDA is very concerned about. So this new guidance allows you to bridge that almost requirement of machine learning to change often with the way the FDA tends to regulate it or expects to regulate it. And basically the guidance comes and says, You need to submit to the FDA, along with your regular submission, a document called a predetermined change control plan that would explain how you want to change your machine learning model while the product is in the market, what you would use to revalidate the model to ensure that it is safe and reliable for patients, and how you will even change the plan itself. I think it'll have some great effects on opening more competition and allowing people to improve uh, the treatment a patient at home or in the clinic faster, you can deploy products faster, you can improve them based on market input. Uh, I also think that it likely have some, you know, negative regulatory consequences like the ability for a lot of information about what your device does to be held away from public scrutiny as a result of changes. I think, you know, all these things have very complicated long-term consequences to the way every word is written. And like everything, you know, it'll cause a lot of efficiencies but some dis But I think overall the idea to allow manufacturers to take responsibility, show that they understand their product and change it with time in a way that's more consistent with today's practices is a welcome change by industry regulators and most of all patients. But I think it'll also be very complicated for large companies that already have a lot of momentum to change their processes to comply with that. And I think small companies will have a huge advantage in that space.
0: Well, that moves perfectly into the next question, because you mentioned the grace period. The FDA has given companies to kind of get up to speed with these regulations, where they won't reject an application solely because of inaccuracies or faults in pre-market submission. Um, But that's only until... October. What advice do you have for these manufacturers? um, Maybe these bigger ones who are going to need to change their processes quite quickly.
1: I think they need to immediately create a governing board that will take a very tactical role at triaging which points of their quality management system needs to be uh, modified, which points need to be assessed for impact of those modifications, and then create and execute on a plan to do those modifications in a reasonable amount of time. I think it's hard for a big company, any big company, especially big regulated companies, to operate at that speed. But I think it's a it's a requirement to be able to do uh, what they need to do. I think another part is that to do this efficiently and at scale, you need an immense amount of automation. And I think that uh, the sooner companies start understanding that that maybe their existing processes were which are meant to work at the speed of hardware need to now transition to work at the speed of software. Uh, But those processes cannot only involve people, they have to involve people and systems to automate a lot of the generation of evidence and and the compliance checks and and work itself, because I think they will find that there's no way to do this in the way they're used to working, which is by large highly manual. I think that's going to be the biggest transition for for companies is how do we get to the speed? How do we have these features in our lifecycle management system and remove as much manual work as possible uh, to be able to comply with this? And, you know, probably the biggest thing is they need to go find a partner who understands this, who's built validated cloud applications, validated web applications, validated machine learning applications and help them understand the short-term and long-term implications of these regulations and how they need to adjust their systems and processes to do so.
0: I really appreciate that advice. And now switching back to AI and ML specifically, you have a lot of expertise in AI and ML, and that's you know why we're speaking today. But there was another guidance that came out recently about decentralized clinical trials So can you talk about how this guidance and decentralized clinical trials in general can present an opportunity for AI and ML manufacturers in this space?
1: So many ways. I actually am am just so excited about what's going on from uh, an American and European regulatory landscape. Uh, It just feels like the outcry of the public, of patients, of their families, their caregivers, and even the manufacturers. And people who are in the agencies working to improve patients' life has has finally kind of come together this year for a whole host of changes. I think the decentralized clinical trial guidance, which kind of opens a new door to how you are formally going to conduct clinical trials in the 21st century, is very, very welcome. I think there's going to be a lot of applications of machine learning to measure things, to help patients conduct the trials at home to help assess those trials, to help find weak uh, and strong safety signals in those trials, to help in triage population and find the right set of people to be part of of a clinical trial to prove that it's efficacious and safe to its intended use. And I think also in those guidances is hidden some burden for companies uh, in that space because it's part of it is saying, you know, we want to give this responsibility to people. We want companies to be able to do this to reduce the cost of making drugs and increase the safety and efficacy of drugs to a larger population, right? That's a big part of decentralized clinical trials. Can we add more and more people of different ethnic backgrounds, different ages, different geographic locations mm-hmm. to this trial to ensure that the drug is safe and efficacious for everybody. But as part of that, there's going to be uh, more responsibility. And that responsibility will fall more on the drug sponsors or the medical device sponsors and the companies that produce clinical trial software. I think they're going to go through a transition this year and next year. It would require them to be more uh, regulated and more controlled than they're used to being. And I think the decentralized clinical trial guidance is one of a few documents that talks about it. There was a guidance a few weeks ago about the expectations of real-world evidence and the expectations for data integrity and validation. And I think those combine well also with EMAs guidances that are coming out right now around how to manage computerized systems and data for clinical trials. So I think machine learning is going to have a huge impact on clinical trials, especially from a safety signal assessment standpoint. What is dangerous, what's not, How can we get more information for multiple biomarkers in combination with uh, the intervention to really see the effects on people in the environment they live in? But before we do that, I think there needs to be a transition phase for decentralized clinical trials, the way information is gathered and shared to be more uh, rigorous and for data integrity and validation to take a much larger position in the mind of people who run these companies to know that. If we're going to depend on them to make drugs that can save lives or hurt people, there's going to be a lot of regulations associated with how that information is captured and analyzed and used.
0: In your opinion, what are the most exciting opportunities presented by these new legislations that we've talked about today?
1: I think for large companies, it's an opportunity to change. It's an opportunity to start thinking of generating life-saving innovations in a new way at a new speed at a better price point that can reach a broader market. And I think executives of these big companies need to look at it as an opportunity like that and grasp it with two hands and use this regulatory tailwind to influence the company and instigate change that's in the benefit of the company and patients. And I think for people who run smaller companies, growth companies, and even are starting companies now, I think there's a lot of room to adopt these methods and the tools associated with them early and use that to outpace uh, the competition and generate the type of innovation the public expects in, in healthcare, really. I think one thing is we're going to see a lot more automation around clinical trials and uh, deeper understanding of safety signals. And I say that term a lot because it's just so complicated to understand what happens to a person. Uh, there's 10 million ways the human body can get injured, uh, according to ICD-10, somewhere around that number. And there's so many scenarios, so many contexts of uses, so many uh, weather patterns, right, that all combine together to create this with a drug or an intervention, a medical device. And I think there's going to be a lot of interest in how do you identify the true risk and the reward of something when you can gather this information. And I think we're already seeing the first part of that, which is a lot of systems to uh, understand what is the right composition for a trial population. Uh, to make sure that, again, from an equity standpoint, we are able to validate the drug and its efficacy and safety on as broad a population as possible to make sure that it can help everybody. Uh, and I think it just makes sense to do this in a decentralized way. I think it's just the start of this, especially the PCCP guidance is, is as a startup that wants to get going, it kind of gives you the leeway to say, let's start with uh, something small that we know works. And let's create a framework that allows us to change it with time and be experts in our product to make sure it's still safe and move and change and improve it faster than the big competition and be able to win that way. And I think we're going to see a lot of companies that are going to be very successful in innovating and in digital using this, but it will require a, a change in, in the mindset of what it means to make healthcare products, medical products, and and technology. Because I think a lot of people that come from the tech industry into the medical device or regulated clinical space, GXP space, many of them have never worked on a product that can kill someone or can harm someone or someone's parents or children. And they've never worked in a company that has made something like that. And as a result, the way they see their work is very different than the expectations of people who regulate uh, safety-critical products like medical devices. And I think that's a big gap that people need to close and understand that you want to help patients while well, helping patients means you need to prove it and you need to prove it safe.
0: Yeah, so some exciting opportunities, but also a lot of challenges as new legislation tends to create. But that is all the questions that I had. So I just really wanted to thank you for your time today and your expertise and your very eloquent answers.
1: Thank you so much and, and happy to be here and happy to help. And, you know, we at Ketrix want to help folks. So it's exciting to, to be part of a group with people like you that are in this revolution that's going on right now on how we receive care. Uh, so I appreciate the time. Thank you.
0: MedTech Connect is a podcast by Sightline. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out MedTech Insight. There you can find any articles we mentioned in this episode and more articles on the subject. This podcast and others by Sightline are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn, so make sure to follow to get the latest updates on when new episodes are published. Thanks for listening, and be on the lookout for more MedTech Connect episodes every month.